This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story is brought to us by one of the best Old West storytellers in the nation, our regular Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. He's a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, and Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he's a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's Roger with the story of legendary mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick. Tom Fitzpatrick was one of the greatest of the mountain men. He trapped nearly every beaver stream of the West and became the leader of trapping parties halfway through his first season in the mountains. He was a partner in the famous Rocky Mountain Fur Company. He made the effective discovery of South Pass. He guided the first pioneer settlers most of the way to California and others all the way to Oregon. He guided the first Catholic missionaries to the Pacific Northwest. He was a guide for John C. Fremont on his second expedition and a guide for Colonel Stephen Kearney during the Mexican War. He was Indian agent for the tribes of the High Plains. He did it all. Here's Dublin, Ireland's Miles Duncan. Miles is a historian specializing in 19th century Irish history and in the American West. I think he's probably the single most significant Irish-born figure in the history of the American West, and there were many significant Irish-born figures in that history. An Irishman who is virtually unknown in his own country, but is rightly celebrated in the USA. According to his biographer, Leroy Hafen, no other man is so representative of this epoch. Tom Fitzpatrick is born in County Cavan, Ireland in 1799. He has two brothers and four sisters. His ancestors have been large landowners, but because of their Irish nationalism, have suffered greatly under English rule and had their lands confiscated. Fitzpatrick sees that his opportunity lies in the new country across the Atlantic, the United States of America. When he is 16 years old, he leaves home and signs on as a deckhand on a merchant ship. For some time, he sails the high seas, but when his ship puts in at New Orleans, he leaves the life of a sailor behind. He makes his way up the Mississippi and settles in the booming frontier town of St. Louis. When he arrived in St. Louis, it coincided with the publication of one of the most famous advertisements in Western history, the the ad in the uh, St. Louis newspaper, the Missouri Republican, which was published in 1822. And that read... Quote, to enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the River Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two or three years. The ad had been placed by the Lieutenant Governor of Missouri, William Henry Ashley, and he'd made a small fortune in the War of 1812 by manufacturing gunpowder. And he reckoned on making a real fortune, a big fortune, by supplying beaver fur to the milliners of the world. And Fitzpatrick, along with Western legends, two in particular, Jedediah Smith and Jim Bridger joined Ashley's force. The expedition 
ascends the Missouri River, traps the beaver streams of the northern Rockies, and has a memorable and bloody battle with the Arikara Indians. The Arikara, or Rees as the French fur traders and later American mountain men call them, live in earthen lodges in villages along the Missouri River in North Dakota. They fortify their villages for protection against horse-mounted marauding Sioux by building barriers of driftwood and willow branches. The Rees trade with other Indians and with whites, mostly fur traders or trappers. An unpredictable bunch, the Rees more than once attack travelers after feigning friendship and a willingness to trade. On the way down the Missouri River, after their first season of trapping, some 30 mountain men of the Ashley Henry Trapping Party anchor their two boats at the Arikara village. The Rees seem friendly and signal their desire to trade. After an afternoon of trading, the mountain men settle down for the night on the beach, and the Rees return to their fortified village on the bluff overlooking the beach. The night passes quietly. Suddenly, just before sunrise, rifle fire erupts from the Ree village and rakes the beach. The mountain men are sitting ducks and outnumbered ten to one. They return fire, but in their exposed position, the situation is hopeless. Before the mountain men can get into the water and board their boats, half of them are killed. Many others are wounded. When the survivors reach Fort Atkinson in Missouri and relate their tale of Arikara treachery, Major Benjamin O'Fallon, the Indian agent for the Great Plains, organizes a force to punish the Rees. Included in what is called the Missouri Legion are 80 mountain men, Colonel Henry Leavenworth and 230 soldiers, and more than 700 Sioux warriors. Tom Fitzpatrick is made one of the officers of the mountain men. The Sioux see the expedition of the Missouri Legion as an opportunity to attack their old Arikara enemies. So great is the Sioux enthusiasm that they gallop ahead of the Missouri Legion and attack a group of Rees who are caught outside the fortification of their village. When the whites arrive, they cannot fire for fear of hitting their Sioux allies. Seeing the mountain men and the soldiers take up positions around the village, the Rees retreat inside their fortifications. And when we return, we'll continue with the story of mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick. And you're listening to Roger McGrath, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, and we love bringing you these stories about the American West because no one else does. When we come back, more on the story of mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick here on Our American Story. (laughs) 
And we continue here with our American stories and the story of mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Seeing the mountain men and the soldiers take up positions around the village, the Rees retreat inside their fortifications. Behind them, they leave a dozen dead Rees. The Sioux pounce on the bodies and quickly chop them to pieces. After tying cords to the severed arms, legs, hands, and feet, the Sioux drag the body parts in a triumphal procession around the village. Tom Fitzpatrick and the other whites watch the grisly spectacle, not realizing they are seeing only the opening act. An old Sioux chief soon appears with one of his wives. Immediately in front of the village and with a war club in her hand, the squaw rains blows down upon the body of a dead Ree. At the same time, the chief taunts the Rees for allowing a squaw to club the corpse of one of their braves. The final act comes when a Sioux shaman arrives on the scene, crawling on all fours and snorting like a grizzly. With his own teeth, he tears mouthfuls of flesh from the body of a dead Ree. By mid-morning, the Rees signal their desire to parley. Colonel Leavenworth jumps at the opportunity. Fearing they will have no more opportunities to kill Rees, the Sioux are angry. When the calumet is passed around, the Sioux refuse to partake. Smoke the peace pipe with the Rees? No way. The Sioux leave for parts unknown. Colonel Leavenworth and the officers of the Mountain Man Company, including Tom Fitzpatrick, smoke the calumet with the Rees. The negotiations proceed rapidly. The Rees simply agree to all of Leavenworth's demands. Fitzpatrick and his fellow mountain men suspect the Rees are agreeing too quickly. What's their game? During the night, the Rees slip out of their village and disappear. Tom Fitzpatrick never forgets the lessons he learns from the surprise attack of the Rikra and its aftermath and the lessons from his first year of trapping and dealing with various tribes of Indians. It becomes clear to him the Indian warriors of the High Plains only respect power and force, and if they can take advantage of any people they perceive to be weaker, they do. Moreover, there is no Red Brotherhood. Each tribe is fiercely independent, and while a few are allied in one manner or another, most are enemies of each other. Fitzpatrick understands that each tribe must be dealt with individually. Fitzpatrick's second season of trapping, 1823 to 1824, brings a discovery that affects the course of the American nation. In March 1824, Fitzpatrick is leading a trapping party when he makes the effective discovery of South Pass in the Rockies. Here again is Miles Dungan. The South Pass is very, very important because it's this gently sloping corridor that rises from the Wyoming Plateau and splits the Rocky Mountains. And, and in 1847, when Western migration was well underway and South Pass was 
invaluable to travellers going from the east on the Oregon Trail. He also then subsequently acted as a guide to many of those uh, wagon trains. But if South Pass had not been discovered and had not been discovered when it was, it would have made emigration to the far west much more difficult. After Fitzpatrick's discovery, the pass will be used by Marcus Whitman and Henry Spaulding, the first missionaries to the Pacific Northwest, and by the pioneers on the Oregon Trail. The pass will be used by those headed to California in the gold rush. The pass will be used by the Pony Express and by the first transcontinental telegraph line, which causes the demise of the Pony Express. The routine for Fitzpatrick and the other mountain men is well established by 1824. There is a fall hunt and a spring hunt, a summer rendezvous, and a winter camp. Because of heavy snows, the men are occasionally holed up for several months during a winter camp. Surprisingly, there are books to read by firelight, and men who recite poetry and share their knowledge of literature, history, geography, and science. Fitzpatrick is a favorite at these winter camps. He is highly literate and knows the Bible and Shakespeare well. Men learn so much while holed up that the winter camps are called the Rocky Mountain College. By 1830, Tom Fitzpatrick is one of the most veteran and most respected of all mountain men. No one knows the Rockies or the Indians better. In 1830, Fitzpatrick and Jim Bridger and several others buy the Rocky Mountain Fur Company from Jed Smith, Dave Jackson, and Bill Sublette. Fitzpatrick is named president. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company is the only fur company actually owned and operated by mountain men themselves. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company faced a lot of opposition from the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada, uh, but more particularly from, from John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company in the early uh, 1930s. And um, by that stage, there was realistically more money to be made from supplying the mountain men than there was from actually trapping for fur itself. Fitzpatrick and his Rocky Mountain Fur Company have a spectacular fall hunt during 1830 in the dangerous Three Forks country in Montana. The area is dangerous because it is full of Blackfeet, and the Blackfeet love taking American scalps. The Blackfeet are allied with British fur companies in Canada, and the British pay and supply the Blackfeet with guns to keep American mountain men out of the beaver-rich Three Forks country. Many an American dies at the hands of the Blackfeet. After winter camp, Fitzpatrick heads to Missouri in the spring of 1831 to buy supplies to take to the summer rendezvous. The summer rendezvous for 1831 will be in Cache Valley, Utah. However, by the time Fitzpatrick reaches Missouri, he finds the traders he is contracted with have already left in a trade caravan bound for Santa Fe, New Mexico. After several days of hard riding, he catches up with the caravan. The traders tell him he will get his supplies for the rendezvous, but only if he helps Jedediah Smith, his old mountain man buddy, lead the caravan to Santa Fe. Fitzpatrick agrees. 
and each day he and Smith scout ahead for river crossing, campsites, water holes, and Indian dangers. In the dreaded Cimarron Desert in southwestern Kansas, Fitzpatrick and Smith find normally wet water holes dry. They decide that Fitzpatrick will dig at one of the water holes while Smith scouts ahead for another one. Smith finds the next water hole full, but too late he realizes the Comanche are lying in wait. Not for him, but for Buffalo. For the Comanche, Smith will do just fine. The mountain man gets off one shot, a shot that kills the chief of the party, before the Comanche riddle Smith with bullets and run him through with lances. One of Fitzpatrick's best friends and a legendary mountain man is gone. Tom Fitzpatrick's closest brush with death comes three years later when a band of Blackfeet warriors spot him all alone crossing a clearing in southwestern Montana. They whoop and give chase, intent on taking the mountain man's scalp. Fitzpatrick's fleet horse is keeping ahead of the pursuing Blackfeet, but Fitzpatrick is forced to stop when he comes to a 40-foot-high bluff overlooking the Yellowstone River. It's either attempt to fight off several dozen Blackfeet warriors or leap his horse off the bluff. Off the bluff goes horse and rider. And when we come back, we'll learn what happens to horse and rider. And again, you're listening to Roger McGrath, and there's not a better storyteller in America about the American West. And as always, all of our stories having anything to do with American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. When we come back, we return to the story of mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick and with Roger McGrath here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and the story of mountain man Tom Fitzpatrick. What we do here on this show is try and take you back to the days in history before America was really America and the men who forged it. And by the way, none of these people knew what was going to happen. The great David McCullough told us that. We know now, but they didn't. Again, back to Tom Fitzpatrick's story and to Dr. Roger McGrath. Off the bluff goes horse and rider. They crash into the water 40 feet below, and Fitzpatrick's rifle accidentally discharges. 
an errant bullet goes through Fitzpatrick's left wrist and hand. Fighting strong currents, Fitzpatrick makes it to the opposite shore and disappears into the woods. The Blackfeet are not about to quit, though. They find a crossing downstream, and the pursuit continues. At one point, Fitzpatrick kills two of his pursuers, and eventually the others lose his trail. Because Fitzpatrick's hand will remain disfigured for life, Indians begin calling him Broken Hand. By the late 1830s, the fur trade is in steep decline. Here's Miles. In the mid-1830s, after a few years, Fitzpatrick saw the writing on the wall and uh, he oversaw the sale of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company to the arch-rivals, to the American uh, Fur Company. And at that point, anyway, the entire trade was not long for this world because the silk hat was already proving more popular with gentlemen than the beaver fur hat and the, the Far East was outstripping the, the Wild West and, and bringing an end to that, that first major phase of Western development. Fitzpatrick's life as beaver trapper and fur trader is over, but he remains in great demand as a scout and a guide. In 1841, he guides the first pioneer settlers to Oregon and California and the first Catholic missionaries to the Pacific Northwest. The pioneers are members of the Bartleson-Bidwell party. Bidwell later writes that without Fitzpatrick, not one of us would ever have reached California. In 1843, Fitzpatrick then comes to the attention of the famous Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton, and Benton recommends Fitzpatrick crucially to his son-in-law. Um, you may have heard of his son-in-law, John C. Fremont, and Fitzpatrick becomes a guide for Fremont on his second Western expedition, and he also then subsequently scouts for the U.S. Army prior to the Mexican-American War and during the Mexican-American War, and he guides the troops led by uh, Stephen Watts Kearney. At one point, Fitzpatrick carries secret dispatches for Kearney from New Mexico to Washington, D.C. Fremont, Kearney, DeSmet, and a number of other prominent figures in the West are effusive in their praise of Fitzpatrick. So too are Indian chiefs. Recognizing this, Congress appoints Fitzpatrick late in 1846 as Indian agent for the tribes of the High Plains. Fitzpatrick's most valuable contribution to Western history was his period spent as an Indian agent. This comes, again, at the behest of Thomas Hart Benton, and at the behest of Benton, an agency, an Indian agency, massive uh, agency, covering a huge swathe of the American West, uh, was to be established for the upper Arkansas and Platte region. So it covers thousands of square miles from New Mexico to Wyoming and beyond. Um, he was, for most of his life, he was a bachelor um, and decides to get married at the age of uh, 50. And he marries into the Arapaho Nation sometime around November 1849. His wife's Christian name was Margaret, um, and uh, she was probably only in her late teens at the time of their marriage. And their marriage, their union, produced two children, a boy, Andrew, and a girl, uh, Virginia. As an Indian agent, Fitzpatrick advises the U.S. Army on the construction of forts and trails, 
and holds regular councils with the various tribes. He also negotiates one of the most famous Indian treaties of all time, the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Fitzpatrick hammers out the treaty in 1851 at Horse Creek, some 40 miles east of Fort Laramie, where grazing is better for the thousands of Indian horses. Almost every tribe of the High Plains is represented at the negotiations. Making the gathering at Horse Creek the greatest assembly of Indians in Western history. More than 12,000 Indians are there, including Assiniboine, Crow, Grovant, Shoshone, Minotauri, Arikara, Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Sioux. Somehow Broken Hand is able to maintain peace among the various Indian tribes, although most of them are traditional enemies. So there's this huge council, um, begins on the 8th of September, and the uh, native tribes were determined to outdo the whites and each other in, in display. Ceremonial robes are worn, faces are elaborately painted, and, and so on and so forth. And the message at this treaty, these treaty negotiations from the federal government was that the days of the buffalo are numbered, Emigrants are violating tribal land, and to avoid full-scale warfare, the federal government has to be prepared and is prepared to compensate the Plains Indians, but physical boundaries have to be drawn on a map, and the tribes must contain themselves within those boundaries. The first issue is quickly agreed upon. The Indians will not interfere with white migration across the Plains in return for annuities in the form of food and goods. The second issue proves much more difficult. The idea of recognizing and accepting tribal boundaries is foreign to the Indian. Traditional enemies, such as the Crow and the Sioux, refuse to recognize each other's right to exist anywhere on planet Earth. Although it took many days of difficult and delicate negotiations, somehow Broken Hand is able to get general tribal areas agreed upon. The treaty has implications to this day. The Sioux, the Dakota, were given the Black Hills uh, of uh, the, the state of, of, of Dakota, and they still have a valid claim to that sacred area, and they still insist upon that uh, valid claim. One of his final reports was written in November 1853, and he's direct and he's opinionated as usual, which probably didn't make him very popular. Uh, he condemned the development of what would become the reservation policy. He wrote... If penned up in small secluded colonies, they become hospital wards of cholera and smallpox and must be supported at an immense annual cost to the government. If no alteration is effected in their present state, the future has only starvation in store uh, for them. And uh, his solution was a radical one, which was the assimilation of the white and the native races. At the time Fitzpatrick hammers out the treaty, he's 52 years old. He is described as being of about medium height, of somewhat slender frame, the well-knit and muscular, alert, active, keen-sighted, and with good Irish color in his cheeks. At the age of 55, after surviving Indian battles, grizzly attacks, raging rivers, and mountain blizzards, Fitzpatrick catches a cold while in Washington, D.C. to discuss an Indian treaty and dies of pneumonia 
The nation honors him by burying him in the Congressional Cemetery, making him the only mountain man to be so honored. And what terrific storytelling. A big thanks to Roger McGrath. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, and a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Also, a special thanks to Miles Dungan. Miles is from Dublin, Ireland, and is an historian specializing in 19th century Irish history and the American West. And my goodness, this isn't your glamorous version of the American West. It is ruled by force. It is dangerous. It is wild. Thank goodness it's not that way anymore. Mountain Man Tom Fitzpatrick's story here on Our American Stories. A mountain man's a lonely man and he leaves a lot behind. It ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find the story doesn't always go. We continue with our American stories, and we like to periodically dig into the lives of business owners, business founders particularly. And we like to do that because, well, it's important to understand their lives, and they don't go around whining or complaining or describing the difficulties they face, the ups and the downs. One thing's for sure, towns can't survive without prospering places of employment. It's where tax bases come from. It's where meaning comes from. Without work and meaningful work, what is life? And so you're not going to hear stories like this anywhere else in the media. And we don't shine it up, but we just tell the stories. And this one today comes from Walter Blessy. He's the founder of Blessy Marine Services, who has over 700 employees. And they move our nation's oil and chemical products on our waterways. We've previously brought you his story as a part of our American Dreamers series, but today he brings us the story of a crisis that his company faced. This is Walter Blessy, um, owner and founder of Blessy Marine speaking. Um, I just want to tell a little story about life and appreciation that touched me greatly. Back some years ago, maybe four, so um, our biggest customer in the marine business that charters tows and barges from us came to us and wanted us to lower rates as the market had collapsed. We had seven years left on our contract um, with no outs for them other than our non-performance. I agonized over what to do and we ultimately offered them a $3 million per year reduction. That wasn't good enough uh, for them. They wanted a, a reduction around 7 to $8 million per year with seven years left on the contract. I had a lot of sleepless nights um, deciding what to do. Finally, I decided to redo the contract at that lower rate, and I was very nervous. I ran the numbers and I felt like there's a good chance the market was horrible. 
I felt there was a good chance that uh, we would not make money for the next seven years. We would just pay the bills. And uh, I felt like paying the bills was the most important thing as we went to zero debt. Um, I then suspended our 401k match, which would hurt me because I, I love our people. And, you know, no one, I explained the situation to the company and no one left. Everybody stayed aboard. And we, we also did some reductions in, um, in our health insurance. And as we progressed, I saw that we were still making money and able to pay the debts and we could be down to zero debt at the end of seven years. And so back this year, about the third year of this situation, I reinstated the 401k match and um, reinstated some, some benefits that we'd suspended. And I sent this following email out to the company um, in recognition of this. As we march to zero debt, I and my family want to extend our personal thank you for your belief and commitment to our family, our team, and to our values. Two years ago, I was overcautious with lowering contract prices in the bad market. Imagine you have seven years left on a contract. They want you to lower your prices by $8 million a year. You bet that I was cautious. Well, the fog has lifted, and we're doing fine. Not as well, but still doing fine. In one of my last emails, I alluded that going forward, we want to do something nice for our people. I was thinking that we would do such in several years. Well, this summer, we had some guests up to our place in Montana. and We're out on four wheels, and one of the guys in my four-wheeler asked me what I wanted to accomplish before I left this earth. And I said, the first thing I want to do is do really nice things for our people that have been with us on the journey of life. And I started thinking about that. I was planning on doing something as the debt went down to zero, but um, I thought more and more about it. And I said, you know what, I feel comfortable enough that we can do something sooner. So I sent this email out. Um, in November 2019, we'll give everyone who has been with us 10 years or more $10,000. You'll still get your bonus, but I want to say thank you for being with us and being having faith in us. So that's what I did. I said, I am humbled by my responsibility for ultimately being responsible for you and your family's well-being. I assure you that my son-in-law's Clark and Daniel share my values and will continue our culture in the same standard after I depart this earth, hopefully many years from now. Happy Labor Day. God bless. Bless you proud. Stay the course. Walter. Well, the responses I got really choked me up. Um, so many people sent me nice, nice things um, and responses, and I'd, I'd like to share some of those with you. And um, I won't say the person's last name. I'll just say their first name. Well, this person, um, a lady um, that is taller than me, said this. Wow, little shit. To say that I'm proud of you is not enough. You truly are an earth angel walking on this planet. And I don't say that lightly. 
there is this light inside of you and you care so much about people without having any type of greed or fear about scarcity. And that's exactly the way true leaders on this planet live. You've touched so many people's lives in a way that I can't put into words. I love you, little shit, and that is just a human-to-human -human love, nothing more, the way I love my closest friends. Coco. Whoa. Oh, oh boy. Next one. Walter, I've been so stressed about my financial situation, I've tried to sleep the entire weekend away. But during my waking time, I've been praying and having faith that God has this, that he would get me through this challenge, knowing he has gotten me through the way worse than money issues. This email from you has turned it around for me. You are truly God sent into my life because without your generosity and my job, I'm not sure what kind of situation I may have myself into. Thank you for my heart. I sit crying tears of hope and tremendous gratitude. Love to you and your family. Regards, Wendy. Wow. Next comment. Walter, I can't even begin to explain how proud I am to work for the Blessy family. I myself have grown so much in the time here. The old man, that was his father, told me a long time ago that Blessy would be our future. He was so right about this. Troy. WB, I think this is an incredible gesture. I will not be in the recipient group as I will only have been here nine years as of November 19, but I think the acknowledgement of efforts of long-tenured folks is amazing. Good work. Bo. Your generosity simply amazes me, and you never cease to amaze me. Your phone call caught me off guard, and now your email has floored me. I'm always grateful to work for you and your company, as I stated on our phone conversation. I was not upset by your measures to be cautious. I understood because you have been so generous to me and my family in the past, and that you were doing what was best for our company's future. I am so thankful for this bonus. I believe you are doing exactly what the Lord put you here to do. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your blessed family. It is a great feeling to bleed green. Please give Jane Ann a hug for me. She is also an amazing person. You're a very lucky man to have found such an amazing woman. I love you both for being part of my life. Forever grateful, Maureen. So, as I read those responses, I stumbled a bit because I was tearing up. Um, you know, I found that in life, um, running a company, being responsible for all these people, folks are going to understand if you're sincere or not. They're going to understand if you're a BSer or not. And um, in, the, in the marine business particularly, um, you have to have people that care. Uh, a captain leaves with his boat and his crew. He has millions of dollars of product, millions of dollars of equipment, and he's gone. He's not in the office where you can look at him. He's out anywhere from St. Paul, Minnesota, to Brownsville, Texas, to St. Mark's, Florida. So we have 75 boats and about 180 barges, and it takes a team to make it happen. And I... I wanted to exp express that. So having said that, I will 
end, but um, it's been an amazing journey, and um, hopefully it's not over and a long way to go. So thank you, and um, if, as an employer, be a good boss, be a loving boss, be a caring boss. And great job, as always, uh, to Alex for getting that done. Alex pointed out to me just a second ago that there were many, many more emails on Walter's desk. By the way, you heard him mention that there was debt in the company and they were looking forward to paying that down. $700 million worth of capital investments in that business. That money went to buy barges. Those were companies that employed people. Towboats. Those companies employed people. And around those businesses were restaurants and waitresses. So we love to tell the story of the ecosystem of free enterprise. Walter Blessy's story, in a way, America's business story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, from the arts to commerce to history, and sometimes, well, sometimes some tough stories and some sad stories about loss, eulogies, and then, well, whatever happened to whomever? Whatever happened to that guy, that girl, that actor, that actress, that musician? We love those stories, too, and this is one of them. Like his spectacular passes and jaw-dropping runs, Michael Vick's path of redemption, well, it seemed endless. His life, it was a dance between triumph and trouble on and off the field. This four-time Pro Bowl quarterback was the most thrilling player of a generation, and he became the most reviled. Vick grew up in the roughest part of Newport News, Virginia, also known as Bad News. Michael lived in the Ridley Circle housing projects where gangs, drugs, and pit bulls were just white noise. It was here where he witnessed two local boys become professional athletes, NFL quarterback Aaron Brooks and NBA All-Star Allen Iverson. Vic knew football was his way out. By 2004, at the age of 24, Vic was the NFL's main attraction, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank rewarded Vic with a record $130 million contract. His dad, he didn't pay any attention to the kids. You know, I did everything. My dad liked to run the streets. You know, my dad liked to do his thing. My dad really went down the wrong path. Growing up with a dad that was on drugs, that was abusive to his mother. It's some things that he probably wanted from that relationship, but just couldn't get. It's like, is this the role that I take in life? Is this the role that I want to take in life? With the uh, first selection in the 2001 NFL Draft, the Atlanta Falcons select Michael Vick, quarterback, Virginia Tech. Oh, baby, the Vick era is here. There's just not that many that can play quarterback the way he could play quarterback. Oh, what a throw by Vic! It just looked like something out of a video game. Out there freestyling, just doing crazy things. This guy is a big-time player. He was just so much faster than anybody else on that field. I'm sure when he was a kid and played tag, he was never in. 
like having Barry Sanders back there as your quarterback. The most dynamic, athletic quarterback that there ever was. You know, almost being like a, a superhero, you know, in the town that needed a superhero. You have just seen Michael Jordan of the NFL. This guy had everything, and he risked it all and ended up losing it all because he wanted to have dogs fight against each other. What planet are we on? I have a developing story to tell our viewers about right now. I was actually on the golf course in Atlanta. Yeah! Oh my gosh, look at that thing. Right down the middle. Good job, Mike. When my best friend called me and told me, I knew it was over. You know, the things that I was trying to hide for so many years or thought I could get away with uh, was now coming to light. How could a football star making literally millions of dollars allegedly get involved in something like this? Allegations of hanging, shooting, body slamming, even electrocuting dogs to death as part of a multi-state underground dog fighting operation is a record-breaking NFL superstar, a former number one draft pick, losing a $120 million contract over dog fights. Michael Vick pled guilty to federal dogfighting charges. Approximately six to eight dogs were killed by various methods, including hanging and drowning, and then buried on the property. 66 pit bulls were saved. Michael Vick spent two months in Northern Neck Regional Jail in Richmond, Virginia, and another 16 months in Leavenworth Federal Prison. And then he was released. Well, recently, Michael Vick was invited to speak at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. It is here where Vick tells his story. It's the story of a man who seemed to have everything and then had to start from nothing all over again. Vic's story starts with his childhood and the moment he knew he had a special gift to play football. My upbringing was like, you know, probably like 70% of uh, most, you know, African-American young kids. You know, I grew up in poverty, um, you know, very poverty-stricken area, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of friends, a lot of things going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of influences. You know, just the ordinary lifestyle, you know, of a a, young black kid, um, but, you know, with aspirations. I knew I had a gift, you know, when I was about seven years old. Like, every day my motivation was to go outside and, you know, do something better to try to better myself at the game that I love at such a young age. And uh, I didn't understand my passion, you know, back then when when I was that young. I just wanted to have fun doing it, but... Everybody around me always, you know, told me that I looked different from everybody else, and I think it was because, you know, at a young age, I always practiced. Michael Vick knew that in order to have a life that was going to be different than those who grew up around him, he had to be different. His grandmother offered him some wisdom. I know it was a lot of challenges growing up in the neighborhood that I was in, and, you know, I always felt like, you know, I needed an edge. I needed to have a different visualization of, what everybody else in the neighborhood did. I wanted to be different. You know, even though we grew up together, even though we all ran together, had fun together, I wanted to be different. So, you know, my aspirations was to make it to the NFL. And I told my grandmother that at a young age, and 
I told her I would do anything to get there. And she told me, if you're going to be successful in life, you, got to, you have to find God at some point. And, you know, that always stuck with me. So I'm like, at a young age, I'm like, what can I do to incorporate God into my life? When I don't know, ain't really know anything about, you know, God or, you know, the Bible or how to interpret it. And I just came to the conclusion, I just put the Bible under my pillow and sleep with it under my pillow until <laughs> something good happened. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a life, well, lost and then gained. Michael Vick's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of Michael Vick. The rest of the story, as most of you probably have heard about his athletic prowess and how he squandered it all, I'm sure you heard what he did to those dogs. And you hated him for it, because the country hated this guy. And so we had just heard from him at a church, and this was him telling his story to the, the people in that church. And he's going around the country telling his story now to young people, old people, anyone who will listen. Actually, how did you get there, right? How do you get from being the highest paid athlete in NFL history to killing dogs? And what's going on in your head that you'd allow that to happen? We just heard about the advice his grandmother had given him, that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to bring God into your life. Well, let's return to Michael Vick and his story. He was the star quarterback in high school and chose Virginia Tech as the college that would launch him as a star. But like all great QBs, Vick had a backup. A plan A and a plan B. Plan B, I wanted to uh, major in criminology. It was really my backup plan. My plan was plan A. I was to make it, you know, to make it to the NFL. And, you know, I was so determined to do whatever it took to make that happen that I couldn't see my plan B. So my determination was so strong that I wouldn't allow anything to come into my life to negate that. After reaching the highest heights of Plan A, Vic fell to the unimaginable Plan Z, a life in prison. He left behind his wife and his three kids. Well, I think I lost focus. Um, and it's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you feel like you, you know, once you receive all these blessings, you feel like you've arrived. And I, I can honestly say I felt as if there was nothing else that needed to be done, but I, I lost sight of Everything that got me to that point, you know, my beliefs, you know, no more sleeping with the Bible under the pillow, no more saying my prayers at night. My, my grandmother instilled that in my brothers and sisters and my entire family. You know, ask God for something that you, you really want, and you never know when you may get it. And I did that all the way up until I was drafted. Uh, once I got drafted, you know, I started living a different life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigorous. It wasn't, you know, crazy. You know, I, I did everything to try to make sure I, you know, did what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I had, you know, I was straddling the fence. You know, I always told myself I didn't want to be a product of my environment. Uh, I always wanted my environment to be a product of me. 
But at the same time, I brought some of those same values with me. When I turned 23, 24, and I had some money, and I was able to, you know, just do anything that I wanted to do and, you know, lost focus and, and uh, ended, up, ended, up, ended up in prison. Vic responded to the notion that his punishment was due to discrimination. You know, first and foremost, you know, we all got to make decisions. And I think that's what, you know, I had every right to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And it, it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard when you got to make a decision based on, um, you know, a positive outcome. And, you know, I had influences around me. But, you know, I think as a grown man at 24 years old and, you know, everything that I received in my life, you know, I was supposed to take a step back and really look at my life as a whole and the people that I affected and the people that, you know, really cared about me. You know, I allowed the Atlanta Falcons organization, you know, my mom and dad, um, my co- college coaches, you know, anybody who, you know, put time and effort into me. And, and la- you know, last of all, you know, God, the reason I really was in the position, the reason I'm here today. It's the easiest thing to do, the wrong thing. It's just the easiest thing to do. And that's all of us, folks. Vic also said that, well, losing his freedom was tough. Quote, I still think I went to prison because there were certain people I needed to get away from. So it was bigger than dogfighting. It was done to bring awareness to bad. It was done to show that regardless of who you are, you will get punished and you are not above the law. And for me, it was a message of, don't lose sight of how you got here. Stay humble. Here's Vic on day one in prison. When I first got into prison, when they first uh, closed the door, it was like um, it was like a dream. And, you know, at that point, I felt like everything in, in life, you know, has to have an expiration date that's not positive. The things that I was doing, I was not going to stop. So that was my expiration date when that door closed. You know, I, I wanted to get out so bad. It was not, It was out of my control, you know, and the only thing I could do was just kind of, you know, look up and think about what I had done and, you know, kind of ask God to forgive me for what I had done and ask God to help me. And I wanted it all right then. I, I, every time the, the God came to the door and put the key in the door, I was hoping that there was somebody that was coming in to free me. And that was just the first day, you know, and I... <laughs> That was the first day. <laughs> I ended up doing 465 more after that. My goodness. But Prison was his expiration date. Now, that is, of course, the old Michael Vick. He looked to God, but it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't going to unlock his cell and live his life for him. Vick realized his life required personal responsibility and obedience. You know, I always looked at myself as, you know, God's child, you know, I'm praying at night, like saying the hardest prayers that I can pray. But I know it's a mutual respect and a relationship that you have to have with God. You know, I, I didn't want to disrespect that relationship and put a strain on it. So, I, you know, I just told myself I got to be patient. You know, those doors are not going to open when I want them to. And, you know, I have to, you know, put my focus on things that's going to be positive reinforcement when I get out. And, you know, it wasn't until then when, I opened, when they opened the doors and they let me out. You know, it was a new era for me, you know, in my whole walk. Vic discussed overcoming life's obstacles. It was so far-fetched, you know, because all you hear about is the reasons that you can't make it. You know, mm-hmm. you know you're small, you know, you, you know the, the NFL doesn't 
um, you know, have they have a limited number of black quarterbacks, you know, which is, you know, something that, you know, is, is should be overlooked and something that I wanted to change. And, and, I, and I did. And I was I was just kind of able to just shift my focus to, you know, doing all the right things. And I did it. But just in the position that I was in, why would you why would you risk that? Why would you sacrifice that? Um, for things that, you know, really didn't make no sense or so was morally wrong. And, you know, so I'd look at it in that sense. You know, mm-hmm. I felt like I should have been more of a mature person and, and was should have been able to not be a product of my environment, which I didn't want to be. Here are some things that have changed about post-prison Michael Vick and what his plans are post-football. You know, I try to think before I speak. I try to think before I react. Um, I try to weigh all the options, pros and cons before any decision is made on anything in my life. You know, I think I'm a better teacher, you know, starting with my kids and, you know, a better leader, you know, in the locker room. And just, you know, with my overall family, I feel like I'm responsible for them. And every decision that they make, I want it to be a reflection in themselves and a reflection of me. So that's a great responsibility within itself. Um, and I feel like it's, it's more out there for me. I feel like football was just only a facet of my life, and I was able to accomplish that goal. And I think it's time to kind of put that to rest and try to figure out what my, you know, my next calling is. And I'm just going to let it flow. I'm going to let it come. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to ask God to give it all to me at one time. I'm going to just let it happen. And he's letting it happen. And again, this talk was at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama, and he's showing up at churches and gatherings around the country. And I think it's almost going to be a ministry of sorts for him, talking to young men about their choices, especially when they get blessings, because that's when you can really just throw everything away. And talking about that environment, and you don't have to be a product of your environment. It's nonsense. You can actually affect the environment, and you've got to teach people this. Or, well, what other options are there for them? Michael Vick's story, by the way, after serving his sentence, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2009. As a member of the Eagles for five years, he enjoyed the greatest statistical season of his career and was named to the fourth Pro Bowl in 2010. His official retirement from professional football came in 2017, and he was immediately hired by Fox Sports as an analyst for Fox NFL kickoff. Michael Vick's story, by the way, we just love because, well, if you believe in redemption and you don't have to be a person of faith to believe in it, uh, then you're rooting for people. When they, when they make bad decisions. And here on this show, we root for people all the way through, all the way down the line. This is Lee Habib, Michael Vick's story, a story of redemption, of love, and we'll be bringing you more like it here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Share it with friends. And if you have stories like this in your life, and I know you do, You just do. Share them. Don't be ashamed of them. Share them. Share them loud. Own your failures. Own your mistakes. It makes you more human. It allows you to connect with your fellow man. Again, this is Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20, everything from the doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Story of a song. And what we were listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them? Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what? what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs, and there are programmed sounds already, and you can create your own, and you just put it in. It loads these sounds, and you got kick snares. I'm like, MPC, you know? I'm like, and then what would be like if you could get like a, a, a you know, like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds? What would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah, blah, blah expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great, thanks. You know, and so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my, my whatever Triton. And so I'm like, okay, all right, all right. What does this thing do? Okay, let me, all right, well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough. All right, loop that down. Okay. All right, I need a bass part that goes with that. And I can't find a bass sound. So I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool. That's cool. All right. Oh, what's this thing doing? I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns. And I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns. 
I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, but otherwise. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know. Never done that before. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to think of every cliche I can think of. And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics just started, you know, pull up to the bumper rubba in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I record it. Literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of, you know? And I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever. And life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, again, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give. It wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is gonna give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like, I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink, you know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh, yeah, this girl, she's a white chick, R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on, and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like, she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the L.A. Reed called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American Tour. 
Thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging them out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about the Constitution or the founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it, remember it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates who insisted that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our arts spring from this. All of the ideas of all the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song, the story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and it's time to hear the story of one of the more unusual figures in American history. While you seldom hear his name nowadays, he was a big deal during the late 60s and early 70s. Here's Jesse with the story of Tiny Tim. saw Tiny Tim on television while growing up in the 80s. Captured my attention right away. What the heck was I watching? A grown man playing the ukulele, singing like a cartoon character, with a terrifying physical appearance and strange demeanor. Think Marilyn Manson meets Jackie Mason. I'm not trying to be mean, just descriptive. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, hearing this music today, someone who isn't familiar with Tiny Tim might think that this was all just one big joke. But Tiny Tim wasn't a joke. Most people thought of him as a novelty comedy act. But the thing is, Tiny Tim wasn't really an act. Now, here's the speaking voice of Tiny Tim. You're going to notice a bit of a difference from his singing voice. Melody, in my opinion, is 99% of all songs. Words are just 1%. A great melody is what really counts, whether it's today or 50 years ago, any of the Beatles songs. You know, the Beatles had one thing 
in common with Irving Berlin and all the other writers like the Gershwins, they knew how they had a great knack of, of what hit songs sounded like. You take mostly any of their songs, from Norwegian Wood to uh, I Saw Her Standing There to uh, Love Me Do, every one of these songs can be remembered. They just had a knack of writing hit songs. In April of 1932, he was born Herbert Buckingham Carey in Manhattan. His mother, a Polish Jew. His father, a Lebanese Catholic. Tiny Tim displayed musical talent at a very young age. At five years old, his father gave him a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM record of Beautiful Ohio by Henry Burke. Long, long ago, someone I know had a little red canoe. Tiny Tim would sit for hours listening to this record. At the age of six, he began teaching himself to play guitar. By his preteen years, he developed a passion for records, specifically those from the 1900s through the 1930s. He began spending most of his free time at the New York Public Library reading about the history of the phonograph industry and its first recording artists. He would research sheet music, often making copies to take home to learn a hobby he continued for his entire life. The New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, I don't know if any one of your listeners know this, Mr. Bailey, but they have over 7 million songs and with the original sheet music co uh, you know, cover going back to the 1800s in large bound volumes. Mm -hmm. Some of them are microfilm now and they can be, they can be Xerox only with the publisher's permission uh, after 1905. Mm -hmm. But before 1905 you can Xerox them. Uh, and I found, just looking through the history of this country, as well as the hit songs at that time, which is simply amazing. And here's a song, thanks, I picked, thanks Mr. Bailey, I, you, I picked a song up last year in the library. The sheet music was faded and torn, and I was just fortunate to be able to Xerox this mm -hmm. because it was 1905, and they don't let you do anything after that year mm -hmm. unless you get the publisher's permission. But here's a song that... Um, was written at the time the subways were first being built in Chicago and in New York, the first underground subways. I hope the boys are. Swooning all the season round Way down, way down in the subway We underneath the ground At 11 years old, Tiny Tim began learning how to play the violin and the mandolin Soon moving on to what would be considered his signature instrument, the ukulele after dropping out of high school, he worked a series of menial jobs before he discovered his ability to sing in an upper register. There's something of a new revelation. I never knew that I had a higher top register. And one day I heard Rudy Valley sing, and uh, I said, gee, look how high he hits those notes. I consider this a gift of the Lord, uh, an undisclosed gift. By the early 1950s, he had landed a job as a messenger at the New York office of MGM Studios, where he became ever more fascinated with the entertainment industry. Tiny Tim started by performing at dance club amateur nights under different names such as Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, and Emmett Swink. Oh, animal crackers in my soup! 
out from the crowd of performers, Tiny Tim would wear crazy outfits. And after seeing an old poster of a long-haired Rudolph Valentino, Tiny Tim grew his own hair out to shoulder length and wore pasty white facial makeup. His mother didn't understand his change in appearance and was intending to take her son, now in his 20s, to see a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital until his father stepped in. You see, back in the day, if your mom took you to Bellevue, you were pretty much certified crazy. She left me with the herpes. Now why did she do that? Last night I sat upon a chair and gave it to the cat. The cat gave it to Rover and to the mousey too. The mousey gave it to the bird. I don't know what to do. Thank God his dad intervened. By 1968, his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, was released. It contained an orchestrated version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which became a hit after being released as a single. Now, for most of the album, Tiny Tim sings in his unusual falsetto style. However, on a number of songs like this hilarious rendition of Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, he sings both baritone and falsetto, alternating between the two. Because you've all been so sweet, another duet for you. They say we're young and we don't know Won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know, I guess it's true Cause you got me and baby, I got you Funny thing is, he almost sounds just like Cher I got you, babe I got you, babe Just a year later, in 1969, Tiny Tim was now a household name on three continents when he appeared with Bing Crosby on live television from the Hollywood Palace. We'll have a little game here. I'll sing a bit of a song, and you tell me uh, what picture it was from, and then you have to sing another song from the same picture. Now, sit down. This will take a little thought. You ready? Thanks, Mr. Bing. That'd be great. I'll sing the song. You tell me what picture, and then you sing a song the same. Down the old ox road, though you'll never know where it is by looking at maps. Oh, gee, that's easy. What's that? That's, the year was 1933. The picture was College Humor. Right. And from that picture, you also sang, Learn to croon. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, Learn to croon. Well, you could throw a Labrador through that that vibrato of yours. (laughs) Tiny Tim was now just about as famous as you can get. That same year, he married his third wife, Vicky, on the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in front of 40 million viewers. Here's stage magician and comedian Penn Jillette on why Tiny Tim matters to him. Tiny Tim matters to me because he is the antithesis of all that is cynical in the uh, American culture. There was this time... You know, this time in the late 60s when all of America decided to embrace, whether with a wink or whether without a wink, someone who was truly different, who was truly eccentric. And all the people that have reason to be cynical, um, Lenny Bruce, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Johnny Carson, Bing Crosby, Howard Stern, um, 
they all melted in front of Tiny Tim. Bob Dylan uh, seemed to think he was the only real person that uh, Bob Dylan ever met. Bob Dylan met a lot of people. On September 28, 1996, Tiny Tim suffered a heart attack just as he began singing at a ukulele festival in Montauk, Massachusetts. He was hospitalized for three weeks before being discharged and told never to play again on stage. Tiny Tim ignored the advice. On November 30th of 1996, he was playing at a gala benefit hosted by the Women's Club of Minneapolis. While performing his last number of the evening, he suffered another heart attack on stage in the middle of a rendition of his hit, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. When he collapsed and never regained consciousness, Tiny Tim was pronounced dead nearly an hour later. And that is the story of Tiny Tim. Never hit your grandma with a shovel. It makes a bad impression on her mind. One of a kind. Unabashedly himself. Strange. American. This is our American story. All I want is $50 million. And great job on that, Jesse. And if you can, go to YouTube, Google Tiny Tim and Johnny Carson, and you'll understand what Penn Gillette was saying. Tiny Tim's story here on Our American Stories. And we're living in the magic of gold.